Welcome to the Med Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Matt Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. What's up, friends? Today we have a monster episode. Our guest is Chairman, Chief Executive Officer of Gamco Investors, the firm he founded in 1977. In today's show, we hear the framework behind one of the most renowned stock pickers of the last 50 years. Our guest walks us through what he thinks about when analyzing both industries and companies. He touches on the impact of fiscal and monetary stimulus, labor costs, and supply chains. Then we walk through some different industries, media, autos, energy, and yep, I even got to talk about one of my favorites, farmland and agriculture. So we wind down. We hear about our guest's recent focus on PPP, not what you think. It's people, profits, and the planet, and why he chose to launch an actively managed ETF. This episode is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. A typical day in the life of a financial advisor calls for back-to-back client meetings, juggling portfolio management, and the consistent desire to improve client relationships. YCharts report and proposal tools could be the missing piece to help you effectively handle these time-consuming tasks. Now more than ever, clients want to hear from their advisors and with user-friendly templates at your disposal, generating impactful client reports can be easily integrated into your everyday routine, helping you free up time and focus on what matters most, enhancing client interactions and growing AUM. Need to make a clear head-to-head comparison between a client's existing portfolio and your proposed one? Want a seamless way to educate your client and present market trends with minimal effort? Join thousands of users who rely on YCharts to easily answer those questions and much more by leveraging personalized proposal reports to truly showcase your value add. Click the link in the show notes to learn what others are saying about YCharts' comprehensive suite of reporting and proposal generation tools. Get 20% off your initial YCharts professional subscription when you start your free YCharts trial. Click the link in the show notes or tell them Meb sent you for new customers only. Please enjoy this episode with Gamco Investors, Mario Gabelli. Mario, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for the privilege of uh, including long-only value guys on your program. Mario, you've been doing this for a little while. You've seen a few different cycles, booms and busts and everything in between. I'm here during almost a tropical storm on the East Coast of North Carolina, but I imagine for your perch, what's the world look like to you today? Things getting back to normal? You seeing lots of opportunity or lots of warning signs? We like to visit companies, and I've been able to visit three or four recently in the local area and had a company come in from Cleveland. I had dinner with them, my first dinner in New York inside a, a room. We're getting back slowly. We have uh, approximately 250 individuals that work for us, and of those, about 155 are in our Rye office, and about 15 or so are in Greenwich office, and we have offices around the world. The UK is still locked down. The guys in Shanghai and Hong Kong are locked down for different reasons, and that's us. We have 33 analysts, 20 portfolio managers. I started as a sell-side analyst in 1967, coming out of local school, and started covering the autos, farm equipment, and conglomerates, and then picked up the media and entertainment. So we have accumulated and compounded knowledge of certain industries over an extended period of time and all that they've changed into. And 
our analysts and I drill into annual reports, 10 Qs, visit companies, which we're going to start doing again. And we do it with a microscope, and then we look at it with a telescope. What is the company going to look like in five years, and what kind of multiples will exist five years from now, and what are our rates of return, and what's going on in terms of consolidations in an industry, Meg? That's the process. So during those decades, there's been a fair amount of different markets on the macro side. We've had high interest rates to near zero interest rates and negative in some parts of the world the past 10 years. We've had high inflation, low inflation, growth, bear markets, everything in between. We're sitting here with U.S. markets darn near all-time highs or thereabouts. And valuations in some parts of the U.S. market certainly looking pretty depending on who you would ask, euphoric or right in line. Are the various industries you're looking at, what's the opportunity set look like? Does it look pretty good in some spots or are you a little cautious? All of the above. Independent of that, you look at the global GDP as the International Monetary IMF lays out. The U.S. is about 25% of the uh, market, the GDP. And this year, uh, everybody talks about 6 7% growth, but they're talking about real. I'm talking about nominal so if you add in inflation, you're talking about 10% nominal growth in 2021, and a lot of the challenges are the carryover for the first half of 2022, and then Europe will kick in, and we have China doing their thing, and China, Europe is about 18 or 19% of GDP, China is about 18, 19% and of global GDP. So when we look at the U.S., we do the following. What are the revenues going to look like? What are cost of goods sold going to be? And cost of goods sold last year were impacted by PP&E. And then what happened is companies starting in March, April accelerated deferral of CapEx. They decided to cut back on inventory to improve liquidity. And you had a particularly nasty time with regards to the bottle stocks in March, April, May, June, and that is banks, oils, travel, and leisure. And then starting in the summer of 2021, in part because of the Fed, 2020, and then in part because of the Fed stepping on the accelerator in terms of putting liquidity in the system and then obviously couple that with significant doses of fiscal policy. And the Biden administration took over and put pressure on the fiscal area. For example, a new budget for the year starting in October was, looks like it's going to be over $6 trillion. And the revenues are about 4.2. Even though revenues are rising, there's going to have a deficit again of $2 trillion. And that adds to the amount of money and the Fed remains accommodating. Powell at some point will basically take his foot off the accelerator and cut back on his bond purchases. And every time it does that, the market has a challenge. Independent of that, gross margins are impacted by cost pressures. It's no different than what happened a year ago. People will rush to the Costco's and load it up on toilet paper and everything else. And businesses are doing that today, double ordering and you saw that in lumber, and then all of a sudden they say, whoa, we got too much, and they stop, and the prices will come down. China, meanwhile, is saying, hey, we're doing what the U.S. did with the strategic oil reserves. We're doing that on commodities, and we're saying to the speculators, hey, stop, and that has the ripple effect. So from a gross margin point of view, I think we're looking for companies with that virtual pricing power, and we're seeing companies raising price, and they're being accepted. And secondly, you've got wage inflation that's coming in, and whether that's spiked in part by the government payments or whether that's people having to stay at home or want to stay at home and that labor cost increase is going to be with us for a while. Independent of all of that, the SG&A, however, is not rising as fast. So you're going to have a pretty good improvement in pre-tax profits. And you'll see that year to year in the second quarter. And then that'll continue for several quarters on a tops down basis. 
we just look at that to see how our various companies and our various sectors perform. And then on top of that, you then have to ask yourself, what's the tax rate going to be? And that's work in progress. Where Our models are saying 25% corporate. We think we maintain territorial versus global. We obviously want to see minimum taxes. And then from an individual point of view, you're going to worry about the rates. You're going to worry about carried interest. You're going to worry about Section 1031. Not worry about it. You just be aware of it. And that's work in progress. And then what we all hope for, and particularly here, when we're driving along all the uh, roads and bridges and section of I-95 has been going through a, a massive challenges. And so an infrastructure, conventional one anyway, is totally needed, whether they do that or not. Between now and July 4th, we'll see when the uh, Congress goes into recess. But in that regard, we think it's necessary. When a bridge collapses in Mexico City or in Genoa, you know that we have that. I'm glad even Nancy Pelosi is citing the American Society of Civil Engineers, which we host a conference every year. We host about seven or eight of those. And the head of that American Civil Engineering shows up, Society of Civil Engineers, and points out that our systems improved to a C plus, but the bridges are still in need of repair. And there's 500,000 of them and the roads need funds. And then we need broadband speed because of remote learning, remote work, remote medicine, and so on particularly in rural America. So we see a need for conventional infrastructure with the broadband kicked in. Now they want to put in some social infrastructure. Whether that's split, we don't know, but clearly sensitive about that. And the stocks are going to move up and down depending on how the political system is working. So from our point of view, we have accumulated and compounded knowledge like on the auto industry. We've had 46 years of conferences all taking place in Las Vegas when the industry gets together. It was virtual last year. This year, we don't know yet. And Four years ago, we went to autonomous driving. We brought in the head of engineering from Intel to give us a talk. A couple of years ago, we brought in an EV. That last year, we used the notion of what's going on in the pre-owned car, better known as used cars. This year, we're going to focus on something different. I'll give you an idea. Back in the early 60s, you were at the University of Virginia thinking about it. Basically, there was a movie called The Graduate. The Graduate had a segment in it basically says there's a great future in plastics. Well, today it's recycling of plastics. So we have one of our teammates who does research, who's done a good job on it, looking at what is a substitute like aluminum can. So if you're drinking Truly or drinking LaCroix or drinking White Claw, you look at it in a can and that uh, very high percentage of that is recycled, whereas plastics are a problem. But the one we're going to use now is batteries. You mentioned it before, whether you're doing uh, renewable energy, wind, solar, you need cybersecurity, you need transmission, but you also need batteries. And whether it's solid state, all of which are the lithium ion, either way, you're going to use lithium. And so where's the shortage and what are the dynamics there? So what companies do we like that have recycling of batteries down the road? Which ones are doing it now for lead acid? Which ones are doing it? We want to visit those companies. One of them is, in fact, spun off from Johnson Controls, bought by a company called Clario, and that announced in a quiet way they're going public. And we're teeing up some individuals that spun out of Tesla that understand battery recycling. So that's an area that is very important and fundamental, whether it's wind, solar that you need to store when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining, but you also need transmission. You have to go where the wind power is. And so we're looking at companies both in Europe through our research team. We have four or five analysts in London. We have a couple in Tokyo that are looking at things like what is Toyota doing in hydrogen, particularly if you do green eye hydrogen and alternative fuel cell approaches. So that's what we do. And that's just an example. We do vendors to Boeing and Airbus. And what does that mean if the MAX gets back? And what does it do with this detente between Airbus and Boeing with regards to subsidies and 
companies in that area that also have capabilities that are like drones. Can you use them in uh, commercial applications? And so we have 35 years of conferences on that. We do it in media entertainment. We're doing one on healthcare. We last year we had the head of Pfizer. We had the head of several hospitals, and we do that in conjunction with Columbia Business School. We just did one on media and entertainment. We do it on specialty chemicals. So that's how we gather data. But we like to go visit companies, and that is what our analysts are going to start doing all over again, wherever they are in the world. You guys have been well known for that. It's almost like your calling card for a long time, being really industry focused, reading the trade mags, getting really deep, like you mentioned, on a lot of these industries and themes. How much of that does then inform the actual security purchase? And what I'm getting at is really the sort of portfolio sizing, thinking about, hey, look, we see an opportunity in whatever the theme may be in batteries. Or You had it right with regards to our disciplines. And when we buy a stock like HRI, which was spun off from Hertz Equipment Rentals, new management came on board, reasonably poorly managed before. The stock was trading at around 28 on the spinoff. The ETFs, like some of them couldn't own it because it was too small. It had $28 stock. It had about 30 million shares, a billion dollar market cap. So we were able to buy 15% of the company. But when we do that, we don't own it in one account. We own it in mutual funds and we own it in separately managed accounts. And now that the stock's 110, we trim it back a little bit, depending on the tax nature of the individual client. So we customize the approach for the client, whether it's taxable or tax deferred, that is tax-free. And it's a, an interesting challenge in doing that. Independent of that, we don't like to have a position get over 5%. I'm on the Barron's panel for the last 35 years, and one guy at Bailey Griffith had Tesla becoming a very significant portion of his portfolio. And so they logically trimmed it back, and that's us. And we don't like something getting up 6 7 or 8%, no matter how good it is. There's always something to go wrong. Then you get the market mechanics that are different this time. In the 1960s, when I joined Loeb Roads, and I had been buying stocks in the late 50s, you had guys sitting at a trading desk looking at the tape, and they were basically looking at momos. And doing it that way. Commissions were fixed and they were significant. May of 1975 comes along, Meb, and the commissions are broken. They start trading at 25 cents. They drop to a dime. And today, you got Robinhood at zero, even though they're paying for order flow and not making it as transparent as they should be. Gary Gensler is going to look at that with a microscope and start saying, is this what they call national best bid and offer? Are they getting the best bid and offer? Are they? Uh, how is the Citadels of Susquehanna's, the virtues working in that environment? How much are they paying? How much are they making? And the second part was back in January of this year when you had the short squeeze and we had a big position at Tootsie Roll, for example. It went from 30, which we figured was worth 45, and the individual running it is now close to 90. And uh, at some point, somebody's going to want to own it, but stock spikes to 48. And so we would take uh, significant gains on that. And then we'll buy it back at 28, which it got to. And the same thing with a company called National Beverage located in Boca. Tootsie Roll is run by an individual, lives up in Newton, Massachusetts, and works it out of Chicago. And then you had the AMC, and we followed the theater business because we followed the movie industry for 1968 forward. And so we know the concepts of content and distribution. And so when you look at an AMCX, what does it do for other content providers? And how does that work with regards to the Disney Fox deal? How does it, the new Fox, how does that work? And so we keep that high on the agenda. Obviously, you've got streaming music. Streaming music is new. And what is Spotify doing? How many customers do they have? How much individuals willing to pay for it? But then we look at the vendors. There's three companies. Warner Music, which went public. It was selling at 2728. We own Vivendi. We've visited them often in Paris. Sony, I have not visited them. 
in uh, Tokyo, my office has in Tokyo. We keep track of that. We look at what is going on in Vivendi. Why did Ackerman, for example, just buy 10% of the company? Why did Tencent Music buy 20%? Why is the company spinning it off? So we look at those things with great detail and figure out what is the value of the company today and what is it going to be in three or four years and can that multiple hold? Going back to what I said, what is the tax rate on the corporate profits that are going to be robust this year and early next year? And what does that impact on the deficit? Corporate taxes are like $300 billion of the $4.2 trillion that we're raising. And will that go up? It'll go up even if they don't raise rates because companies are very profitable. What impact does that have on our EPS? And then on top of that, and the final thing which you started this conversation with, what's the multiple? What happens to a 10-year bond? which you use as a discount factor. And if that's at 150 today or whatever tips they are, you basically look at that and say, if inflation is going to be at 2%, they can have a cooling off period and it stays at 2 What's the 10-year going to look like? And what is that headwind going to do to stocks? And what is the implications for exit multiples five years from now? And then you look at the buyers. You've got the PE guys, you've got strategic, and then you've got SPACs. And the SPACs are Gary Gensler's trying to slow down the SPAC dynamic. But if we, you and I were talking three years ago, you're doing podcasts then, we'd say, hey, look, companies need to go public. The decline of number of publicly traded companies. This is just one of the ways that Wall Street comes up and the capitalistic system comes up with ways of having companies go public. And obviously, they've got to have new rules and new regulations and electronic fence around it. But if you buy a SPAC as an individual investor and you buy it at the IPO price, you have what I call no risk. Because the money has to be put into a trust fund and you get that money back in two years and you got a free peak, you strip the warrants out. So there's a lot of going on in the mechanics of the market. Well, Mario, you were doing SPACs before SPACs were cool, even in far-flung places like Italy. <laughs> no, I, we were teed up to do some SPACs in 08, 09. We actually launched one <laughs> and it got a two-year life. And unfortunately, we teed up three companies to buy. February of last year, when January Wuhan became obvious as to a challenge, but it became very obvious when it broke out in South Korea and Italy and how SPAC was designed to buy something in Italy. And we gave the money back. And now we have two others that we launched. And we're thinking about one that I'm the CEO of a public company called LICT in the rural broadband and rural America Telecom. And we're considering doing a SPAC there. So we're not early, but we're there. And we understand the mechanics and understand the process. And it's a, an interesting part of the financial dynamics of a free market system. You're going to make mistakes. Some of them, like Nicola, were a little too aggressive in terms of what they presented. The stock at one point in time was selling at a market cap of like $40 billion. Today, uh, it's probably uh, $4 billion. And we had a company called Navistar. Navistar had more technology because 18% of the company was owned by a company in Europe called Volkswagen that had a lot of the capabilities in the new EV and dynamics. And we figured they would buy it. And sure enough, they came along at bid 36, bumped it to 40 odd, and then they are paying us uh, 44.50. And we, along with uh, several other holders, were significant holders of that stock. And that becomes a liquidity event for our clients. Unfortunately, it's an involuntary conversion. If I sell it, unlike a real estate guy with a Section 1031, you can't roll it over. Our clients would prefer keeping Navistar, which is a $4.5 billion market cap. That stock could triple from here. So instead, we're selling it to Trayton. Trayton was the Class 8 big truck spinoff from Volkswagen. And that went public at 27. They're going to raise some money, and we're going to be a big owner of Trayton over time. So that's how the dynamics work and how you know a company, you know an industry. How big is the big truck market in Europe? How big is it? They have like 24% share of that. They had none in the U.S., 
and it was logical that they would buy it. So that's why we teed it up, and we had a fairly a new management came in, Troy Clark. We put him on our Hall of Fame this year uh, because of the great work he did in recitating the company. So that's what we do every day, every week, every month, every year. I was looking through some of your holdings, and uh, you guys tend to own these stocks for a while. If they continue to deliver, we're actually heading to our family farm in Kansas. So for wheat harvest this next coming week, and saw that there's quite a, we'll imagine there'll be a lot of John Deere's out there as one of your holdings. That's a good point. When you look at the three equipment companies, I started covering the farm equipment industry back in 1967. I visited with John Deere, Massey Ferguson in Toronto. J.I. Case was located in Racine, Wisconsin, and they moved down to Houston. Today, we're buying Case New Holland, and we're buying it because of what's happening to cash flows at the farm level, but we're also buying it because they are going to do financial engineering. They're controlled by a company called Exor, which is the Ellie family-controlled business, and they're going to do some financial engineering. They brought a new chap in from that ran Polaris, did a great job at Polaris. His name is Scott Wine. They got like 1.3 billion shares of stock 16. That's a 20 billion market cap. John Deere is probably $80 billion last time I looked, and they did have some profit taking recently. But when you look at the price of beans, wheat, corn, and you say, what's going on in China? How are they buying beans? What does that mean for Brazil? What does it mean for the agricultural ecosystem? We keep all these dots in our perspective, and we try to visit these companies. J.I. Case is located now corporate headquarters in the Chicago area. We've got to get ourselves out to see them. We talk to them on phone. We listen to the Zoom calls. We listen to their conference call when they bought Raven the other day, which gets them into precision farming, less water, more precise planting. So when you're doing wheat out in the family farm, they probably have uh, contract combines. What do you got, 2,000 acres out there? Yeah, I tell you, well, less now. <laughs> but I tell you, the one thing you notice is you wonder why it's like the most sophisticated technology you've seen anywhere. I remember riding around on the combine as a kid, and it was like TV screens and monitors and GPS and air conditioning. It was much nicer than... You're giving away your age. You're a rookie. I know, I know. <laughs> That's an expensive piece of equipment. The typical farmer's got to have at least X number of acres. Otherwise, he does that on a contract basis. Yeah. My old man used to say, I mean, the agriculture sector, just like every industry, goes through its booms and busts and during the 80s. And then there was a big run in the early 2000s for agriculture. Then it kind of plateaued for a while. But it's perking back up lately, I think, over the last year. But one of the areas that you guys talk about, this sort of PPP, people, profits, and the last one being planet, is kind of a cool theme you guys have been hitting on. You mind talking about that just for a second? Yeah, that's great. Look, the uh, climate is important, and we have to be concerned about that. So when you look at renewables, wind, solar, and the various elements in the ecosystem, what company in Omaha provides infrastructure? That is transmission equipment. What company provides galvanizing, for example, and also infrastructure? So you can identify the Valmont, and they also are better known for their irrigation equipment, which is not for wheat, but for corn, and they're using it now for beans and sometimes for cotton. But you also do that because water is precious and scarce, and as you see the drought in the U.S. and the weather changes. But what we did, and I'm glad you brought it up, but it took us a year and a half to get it through the regulators. We did a ETF that was semi-transparent. In other words, it's actively managed, and you don't show your holdings until the end of each quarter, which you money managers file, which is a 13F. If you have over $100 million, you're going to file it. 
that's the only time in which we uh, and we offered it to our investors that are existing investors for no fees. So basically no cost for the first 12 months up to $100 million, and then we'll figure out what we're going to do next. We launched another one for growth innovators, and we have three or four more on queue. And as a public company, we absorb the cost of that because we think it's right for the environment, right because of climate changes. And so they put wind in that. We have a teammate who covers uh, water out of uh, St. Louis. He was working at A.G. Edwards. They were taken over by Wachovia, which is now Wells Fargo. And he joined us about 12 years ago. We had been covering utilities ever since Enron had a problem. And we decided that the utilities in an environment which they would earn a rate of return based on a capital structure and based on the PUCs that public service uh, commissions or public utility commissions in the states they were working in, we felt that they would do okay. Now they're migrating to get rid of the coal facilities, but go to a transition fuel, which is not gas. So uh, we created this Love Our Planet and People, L-O-P-P, and uh, it's a slow start for us. We're raising assets, but slowly, and uh, I think we're up to, I don't know, $25, $30 million in that, and we will lose money, but it's necessary. It's uh, the right thing to do. The other thing we do, which is not necessarily copied, but I copied it from Berkshire Hathaway about 20 or 30. I met uh, Warren because he was at Columbia Business School, and I met him in part because they covered a company that he controlled, was actively invested in called Pinkerton's. I was doing business service companies back, and I watched what he did, and then he uh, gave away a certain sum to registered shareholders. So our public company, Gamco, went public in 1999, just before Goldman Sachs did, right after, uh, I think, Newberger Berman went public after us as well. We give money to registered shareholders to allocate to the 501c3. That is a charity of their choice. And we've been doing that with three companies now, Associated Capital, LICT, which is the telephone company I'm the CEO of, and the shareholders like that. The ETFs tend not to register their shares, unfortunately, and but they don't own many of our shares of the three companies. So we hope more companies do that. Instead of the CEO giving money out to his favorite charity, we give it to the shareholders to give to their favorite charities. And that's part of our giving back. It's part of our social responsibility. In the case of LICT, I actually gave money to all our 500 teammates to go out and give, if they found them, uh, the local schools where they would give Chrome if the kids couldn't afford it, uh, give them uh, connecting devices and give them the speed if we could bring it to them. That's what we're doing in that regard. So that's an example. The infrastructure area, we have a bunch of stocks, of which case New Holland would be an example, but there are others. And whether it's Grace Construction Products, we put seven of the nine directors on the board, and we know they're going to sell it within two or three years. The stock's 22 or three, got about 70-odd million shares, so it's a billion-five market cap. We think they're going to get 30 to $35. So you make 50% in two or three years. That's not so bad. Those are the kinds of things we look at. What's the catalyst? What's going to make the profit for the shareholder over an extended period of time? Mario, two more quick questions. I'm going to let you roll. One is, I think you would probably agree, I've heard you speak on this at length in the past about capitalism and free markets and investing being one of the best ways to build wealth by owning ownership in amazing companies. And one of my big struggles is really trying to find the way that we can promote that in the United States. Our public school systems don't teach personal finance and investing. Uh, they got to start teaching that in grammar school or high school. Just open an account, open a bank account, understand the negatives of credit cards, understand what savings are all about. Yeah. I think it's a challenge in a world of Robinhood and, and hyperactive day trading. It's a frustration and hopefully we'll see that change. Now, Robinhood, well, at least Robinhood is getting the individuals that learned how to be active on 
Fortnite and they gaming, but they should have put electronic fences around it. For the last 15 years, we hosted a dinner at Berkshire Hathaway. Morgan Stanley was doing it before. Schroeder, Alice Schroeder wrote a book on Warren. For whatever reason, he didn't want to do it anymore. I now do it. I pay for the dinner. Our firm pays for the dinner. We have four or 500 people who contribute to Columbia Business School and every year. And we'd like to look at how do we give back and what are we doing? And then in addition to that, we're actively voting our stock from a governance point of view, what the companies do with regards to compensation, what are the golden parachutes, what are they doing with regards to other dynamics. And we started a green fund and that morphed into socially responsible and now it's ESG. So we're kind of keeping our oar in a lot of waters, so to speak, or a lot of oars in the water. Last question, Mario. If you look back over these number of decades, our closing question is, what has been your most memorable investment? It could be good, it could be bad, but the one that seared the front of your brain, anything come to mind? Back in 1973, I think I was recommending Lynn Broadcasting, which were run by a guy that left Cap Cities with Tom Murphy and Dan Burke. Lynn Broadcasting was like a 40-bagger for us, so it was then split up. They were also one of the first to go into the Spectrum auctions, and we went from the broadcasters to the Spectrum cable, and you watch the industries. Biggest failures were bidding too low for Netflix <laughs> when Reed Hastings raised the price for the first time, and the market got disheveled. We own it, but it was a couple of years later. So we make a lot of mistakes buying stocks that don't work out because managements don't execute on a plan. We try to give them training wheels if necessary. We're active in our 13D filings. So we're owners and we represent surrogates for our clients who uh, want to be owners. And when you deal with the ETFs, like I'm not going to knock Vanguard, but they can't do the kind of work that they do in terms of each company and an analysis because they don't have the historical context of the company or the industry, and they need the ISSs and the Glass-Lewis's to aid them and abet them. But they own 25 30% of a lot of our small and mid-cap companies, and we have to deal with that. And if they want to vote a certain way, they don't file 13Ds, they file 13Gs, and the rules can change. We'll see what Gary Gensler is going to do. He's, so far, he's putting his fingerprint on a lot of issues, and he's got a lot to look at. Mario, you've been very generous and gracious with your time today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for the opportunity. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at the mebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. <laughs>